Good morning, Knox. It is nice to be in front of you. It is always an honor to be in front of you. And uh, yeah, I'm a little nervous. I'm wearing my necklace that I got in France at the Teze community. It's the symbol of the Holy Spirit. So I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit is among us this morning. And it's a different perspective being here than over there. So I would really appreciate some warm smiles and encouragement from you as time goes on. So um, as we begin our passage today, I would like us to open up our scriptures, the Red Pew Bible, to page 1018, which is Luke 4, verses 14 to 30. You're going to need it this morning, so it'll be helpful. So Luke 4, verses 14 to 30, which is found on page 1018, 1018. As we look at Luke 4, which was just read, oh, a little shorter, (laughs) okay. We need to remember that Christ comes on the scene after a very long, very quiet, very hard and difficult 400 years silence from the last Old Testament prophet to the time that Jesus shows up on the scene. And the audience is wondering, who is this guy? Isn't this Joseph's son? So weird. So, in this passage, Jesus quotes Isaiah. It says that Jesus actually, by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, goes. Sorry. Hmm. By the power of the Spirit goes and teaches in the synagogues. And then he goes straight to Nazareth, where he's from, unrolls the scriptures, and reads. He reads from Isaiah, but not the whole passage. It's actually incomplete. So Jesus cuts out all the words of comfort and justice to his people. What is happening? It's like... The tension is ripe because if you are born and raised in the synagogue, you actually memorize this and you actually know this by heart and you know the words of comfort that Isaiah 61 usually is. But Jesus actually does not read those parts. What do the Jews think? They think, hey, what about the scripture passages that bring us comfort? reassures us that God is here for me and my own. Jesus says, you know, if we actually look, remember his audience, Jesus is speaking to those inside the synagogue, the Jews. And I'm going to say it. But all of the other dirty people, such as God-seekers, Gentiles, and women and likely screaming children and babies are outside in the courtyard, duking it out with the sacrificial goats, sheep, and doves, trying in vain to hear what the priest is saying. Then there are others who aren't even able to come into the temple courtyard, like those sell-out, half-breed Samaritans. They were the worst. Ew. 
So all those people are outside, and all the people in the synagogue are God's chosen people. So what passages does Jesus read? What passage does he call us to focus on? He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus uses language here of good news, freedom, recovery, favor for the poor, prisoners, physically disabled, oppressed. In other words, not them. So, what happens next? In verses 20 to 21, it says, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Whoa. The air is electric. Crazy things are happening in the synagogue today. I'm super glad I didn't skip out and go fishing, because this is interesting. Christ sat down. He quietly communicated authority. Priests usually stand to read the scriptures, and then they sit down to preach. It's like Christ said, I'm just going to sit down right here, and in front of everybody, in front of the home crowd. Then he says to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What scripture? From Isaiah, the Jews knew exactly what passages he left out. He said, For I, the Lord, love justice. This is the passage that you skipped, skipped past. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. And the Jews are thinking, yes, please, say more about our reward. Finally, we'll be vindicated and blessed by the Lord. Before we move on, let's take a step back and see what happened before this moment. Right before this, Jesus gets baptized where the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and he hears his heavenly Father say, You are my Son, in whom I love. With you, with you I am well pleased. Then, full of the Holy Spirit, Christ was led into the desert to be tempted. Then, Jesus goes straight to Nazareth, where he's from, in the power of the Spirit. Jesus goes to his own to begin his ministry, setting the stage he is setting out the purpose of his coming to earth. Now is when he begins to reveal his true identity as fully human, yet fully God. The crowd's reaction? All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Then here comes the pivot point in his sermon, the TSN turning point, if you will. This is where his words weren't so gracious to their ears. Are you ready? 
In his sermon, he outlines who he calls his people, his own. He says, There were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, but God sent him to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now, if you know your scriptures, as I know you do, in 1 King, uh, Elijah was sent to a widow in Sidon. And if you know where Sidon is, Sidon is a kingdom north of Israel, very sliver, small sliver. And then he says to her, woman, give me something to drink. And she's like, okay. And she does. She's like, I'm going to make my last meal for my son and I, and then we'll die. He goes, okay, you do that, but first give me some water. I mean, he wasn't actually that compassionate. But through the interaction, the widow sees God and says, you worship the true God. And then Jesus gives the example of, there were very many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha, yet not one of them were cleansed, only name in the Syrian. Syrian. Whoa. So Syria is also another country on the border of Israel. And Naaman the Syrian, if you actually remember in, in Second Kings, he's the centurion that uh, is filled with leprosy. So he's very successful, and yet he has this crippling disease that makes him an outcast of society. And his Jewish slave girl said, hey, there's a prophet over here in Israel. You should check him out. He probably can heal you. He goes, and then Elisha says, go dip yourself in the river. And he's like, that's beneath me, and walks away. And his Jewish soldiers, slaves, said, hey, why don't you just do it? It's really easy. It's not hard. You should just do that. Naaman does. He's healed. Comes back to Elisha and says, you worship the true God. So back to the Jews. They're like, what's this? Scandal! Why are you talking about a random woman from among our enemies? Sidon was the country of Jezebel. Sidon was the center of Baal worship. Her heritage, as far as her people goes, was one of idol worship and sensuality. Let's just say she's not from Israel. Why are you reminding us of those who represent oppression to us? Naaman the Syrian was from the kingdom of Aram Damascus on the northeast side of Israel. In other words, he is not from Israel. Do we see a trend here? The Jews certainly understood and did not like it one bit. Then they looked for the closest cliff to toss Jesus from. They were so mortified, they were prepared to kill him. Personally, I'm blown away by this story. After all this time, 400 long years, and God's silence to the people of Israel, Jesus comes to us in human form to show us the way in his first sermon, his first examples of who he calls his own people are Gentiles. We worship a God who remembers us. And if this does not make you want to leap for joy, I don't know what will. This is also our story. 
to have long memories of whose we are today and where we have come from. We are in the business of including those we consider outside of our community and giving them the place of honor and not shame, of forgiveness and not judgment, of the love of Christ and not quiet intolerance. I'm constantly amazed in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, who gets it and who doesn't. Who understands the kingdom of God and who doesn't? Just like the nameless widow in Sidon and Naaman from Syria, but also his Jewish slaves. All throughout scripture, you expect that the Pharisees and the priests would hear and see God first. But it's really the marginalized and those who suffer who see God and acknowledge his power. For those of us in society with privilege and power, that's got to wake us up from any delusions of grandeur or superiority. Christina Cleveland, who is the new director of Duke Divinity School Center of Reconciliation, uh, who is also a platform speaker for Urbana 15, speaks and writes on privilege as the ways in which society accommodates some people while alienating others. She continues by outlining what it means to be truly reconciled. Hospitality, I welcome you. Solidarity, I am with you. Mutuality, I need you. If we talk about hospitality, we are all a part of the Missio Dei, the mission of God. We are all a part of this. We can't export the act of love hospitality, and service to the professionals here at Knox, such as Phil, Paul, the staff here, Tom, nor missions to the people with pictures on the wall of the Winchester Room, nor evangelism to an outside organization. In fact, we actually need to learn how to extend hospitality, solidarity, and mutuality to those around us, including our pastoral staff, Phil, Paul, Tom, and the leadership here at Knox. It's important for us to gain a deeper understanding of hospitality. True hospitality is not about us, but it's about God and God's people. It's risky, it's not safe. It means sticking your neck out and becoming vulnerable. It means speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves. It means walking alongside the lives of those who are hurting and suffering from systematic injustice. Solidarity. How do we live out a community in solidarity with each other, even if we worship at different times of the day? Sam Johansson made a radical suggestion at the shift when he said, hey, it'd be really great if we as a church could serve one another, if 11 a.m. service people would come to the 5 p.m. just to, to serve us and to interact with us and get to know us. And he said, and vice versa, if people from the 5 p.m. could come to 11 to serve you, to worship, and get to know each other. And that way we could actually extend hospitality to one another. And it's interesting that today we have a combined service. So maybe we could actually just go for lunch with somebody we don't know today, somebody maybe from another service. Mutuality. I debated whether or not I should include this story, but I decided that I would because it's real. This is what 
is happening in the church from people we actually, you know, that I am supposed to respect in the church. And it's sometimes what makes being a Christian difficult. So let me read this to you. Franklin Graham, which is the, who is the son of Billy Graham, wrote a couple weeks ago on Facebook this quote. Well, this comment, he wrote it. Four innocent Marines killed and three others wounded in Chattanooga yesterday, including a policeman and another Marine, all by a radical Muslim whose family was allowed to immigrate to this country from Kuwait. We are under attack by Muslims at home and abroad. We should stop all immigration of Muslims to the U.S. until this threat with Islam has been settled. Every Muslim that comes into this country has the potential to be radicalized, and they do their killing to honor their religion and Muhammad. During World War II, we didn't allow Japanese to immigrate to America, nor did we allow Germans. Why are we allowing Muslims now? Do you agree? Let's think about that for a second. Isn't this the complete opposite of what we just heard Jesus say to the Jews? Instead of actually trying to block them out of the kingdom of God and the family of God, God actually calls us in. And hospitality, solidarity, mutuality. I'm disappointed, I'm sorry, Mr. Mr. Graham. This is reality. This is the church. Franklin is a, a brother of Christ, so we need to pray for him. Now, I've actually been reading articles about Muslims in the Middle East who have been converting to Christ because they've also been fairly disenfranchised and scared of ISIS. So they're not excited about their own faith and are actually converting to Christianity Obviously, I think time will tell, but we need to pray. We need to pray for the global church. So let me tell you a story about the opposite. So this is a story of Zia Moral, who is a Turkish believer from Turkey. And uh, I heard him speak five years ago in Cape Town, which was the Lausanne Global Gathering of the Church. This is the largest international gathering of the church that I've been involved with. There's like 5,000 people from every country. Um, gathered together to talk about current issues happening in the world, in the church. Zia says that we need the church in the Middle East and North Africa to be strengthened, and that he, as a background believer in Muslim, in Islam, now converted to Christianity, says that he, since he converted to Christianity, fell into this huge hole. He's forgotten. Nobody remembers that he exists, and that's sad. And he said, when you look at a Muslim man or a Middle Eastern man, do you think terrorist? When you look at a Middle Eastern man, do you think beyond the grace of God? There's no hope for this person. Or does he say, do you see somebody who is somebody that God loves, that God wants to include in the kingdom of God? He said that the church actually now is deprived. 
We need the voice of those who have converted from Islam into Christianity, Muslim background believers. We need their voices for us to have a full understanding of God and who God is, just as we do from our believers and brothers and sisters from Africa and Asia, same goes for those in the Middle East. We need Muslim background believers who are writers, poets, journalists, preachers, exegetes, and the list goes on. And he really changed the way that I see Muslims or Middle Eastern people, and he helped me to dream of a church, of the body of Christ that includes those from the Middle East and North Africa. I think this is a different picture than what Franklin Graham is saying. So in conclusion, we need to practice hospitality. And I say that because practicing hospitality isn't a skill that comes easily, but a skill that needs with, comes with practice. Sometimes we feel awkward. Sometimes we make mistakes, but that's okay. In John 12, 32, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I don't think I hear exceptions there. I hear all, all people. So when we stick our necks out, when we're vulnerable, when we feel like we're taking a risk, what we see as death Christ means as a way to bring eternal life and freedom to us. The death and resurrection of Jesus is God's way to open up for all people the door to eternal life. Indeed, all people from all times and places are lifted up with Jesus on the cross and into new life of the resurrection. Thus, Jesus' death is a death for all humanity, and Jesus' resurrection is a re resurrection for all humanity, not one person from the past, present or future is excluded from the great passage of Jesus, from slavery to freedom, from death to eternal life. Christ came to die for the other, those who make us nervous when we see them, those we like to avoid, who behave in ways we consider inappropriate or believe something different. Not only that, he took up one step further. He not only continues to remember us in our predicaments, but he came to break down the barriers so that we may be one just as he is one with the Holy Father.